You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. By way of introduction for anyone who may not know, the RSA Student Design Awards is a global curriculum and competition that challenges design students and graduates all around the world to think about how they can use design, practical design skills and design thinking to address big social, economic and environmental challenges. It is a leading student program focused on design for social impact. We are very proud of the leading role it's played in shaping the mindsets and careers of those who've passed through it. The scheme is driven by a wider RSA mission to enable and support people to engage in healthy dialogue, build networks, be creative, and collaborate to contribute to a flourishing society. I want to say something here. Tonight we celebrate not only the emerging movement around design for social impact, but I think more importantly we're celebrating hope and optimism that we can work together to foster a society that works for everyone, people and planet. I think this couldn't be more timely. So um, there's lots of things going on in the world today, and today is a reminder that if we work together, we use all of our skills, we can come together and address these challenges. For now, I just want to tell you a little bit um, about this past year. Um, This is a chance for us to sort of formally close this year of the RSA Student Design Awards, and it's uh, wonderful for us to be able to reflect on all of the things that have happened. So 2017 marks, remarkably, the 93rd year of the RSA Student Design Awards, demonstrating the program's ongoing capability to adapt to the pressing issues of the day and to challenge student designers around the world to think critically about how to apply their skills. The RSA Student Design Awards is delivered as a set of briefs every single year. This year we had 12. They covered a range of issues such as how we can improve maternal and neonatal health in emerging markets, how we can promote positive intercultural understanding, and how we can improve our financial capability. You'll hear much more about these briefs and all the winning projects shortly. This year, I'm pleased to say that we launched a new film produced by Paul Wyatt, an RSA fellow who is here filming somewhere as well, um, that demonstrates the impact the program has had on a group of students. This charts students from last year's program, and they describe in the film their transformative experience better than I could. Please watch it and share it. Um, You can find it on our Vimeo channel um, and look forward to hearing what you think. As part of our program delivery, we visited over 35 colleges and universities, both in the UK and abroad, to support students working on the briefs and situate their work in the larger landscape of social design. We delivered a range of workshops to help students tackle the briefs and develop their own skills. Most notably, we have been working with RBS for the last five years to deliver workshops for students to develop practical commercial awareness skills to put them in good stead in the future. This is something we hear increasingly about how important it is that designers understand the commercial realities, and we're very proud to be working with RBS to develop this skill set. The RSA Student Design Awards program continues to grow in participation and reach, and this year we received entries from 21 countries, with the majority here in the UK, but many more from the US, Ireland, and Finland. And finally, it's a great honor to be able to announce that earlier this year, the RSA Student Design Awards program was crowned the winner in the Creative and Cultural Skills Design Skills category. This was uh, in honor of our longstanding commitment to advocating for the power of design in society and particularly the benefits of employing designers, young designers, in business. So now I'd like to introduce our speakers for this evening. Announcing our awards tonight, we have Clive Grenier, an RSA Award winner from 1982. 
Clive is now a service design director at Barclays Bank, where he helps to develop new digital design projects, and he brings his background in design to help technology be usable and accessible for everyone. Clive has worked in technology as a design expert for Cisco and for IDEO in the US and the UK, and he was founder of the design company Tangerine alongside Sir Jonathan Ive, RDI, and now chief design officer at Apple, incidentally also a past RSA Student Design Award winner. Clive graduated from Central St. Martins in London, and he's honorary professor at Glasgow School of Art. Importantly for us, he is an active RSA fellow, a past RSA trustee, and now a key member of our RSA Design Advisory Board. I don't think he would mind me saying that his passion for supporting the next generation of designers is second only to his passion for his rock band. (laughs) Our keynote speaker for tonight is David Constantine. David is the founder director of Motivation, a charity transforming the lives of people with mobility disabilities around the world so that people have wheelchairs suited to their disability, their need, and their environment. David was awarded an MBE and, in 2010, the Bicentenary Medal from the RSA for his outstanding contribution to the advancement of design in industry and society. There's lots more I could say about David. I've crossed it all out because I think it's much better if you hear it from him. Please join me in welcoming David as our keynote speaker. Muhammad Ali was once asked what the shortest poem he'd ever written was. Replied in two words. Me, we. My talk this evening is going to be a bit about me, and more importantly, about the we. Firstly, congratulations to all the winners of the RSA Student Design Awards. Um, It's a real achievement, and it will help you move forward in your design careers. Um, When I received the phone call asking me if I'd be chair of the judges um, of the RSA Student Design Awards, I was really, truly honoured, not just because this was the RSA, but honoured because I'd already been here, not as a judge, but as an entrant. In... 1988 to 90, I was studying at the Royal College of Arts, and I entered the design wards and to explore how a mainstream product, there weren't many around in those days, could also be used by a disabled person. I just wanted to design something that would prove that. So I took my own experience, um, but I was keen for it to be well-made, uh, to be stylish, to last a long time, be of good quality and aesthetically pleasing. And not much design for disability in those days was. As a keen photographer, I decided to design a camera bag. I could never quite find the camera bag I needed. And while I can't carry heavy things, I can't carry anything, um, I do have a wheelchair. And that's quite a useful piece of kit for carrying things, including me. And so I decided to design a convertible bag that could be used as a hold-all, a rucksack, so it could go on my assistant's back. But really key, when I was shooting on location overseas... I wanted somewhere that was safe, always accessible. I'd always have my cameras with me. And I use a medium format camera, so this is like 14 kilos of heavy camera gear. It's not just your iPhone. Um, And so I wanted it to be accessible from the front, uh, between my knees, and also from the rear, and be safe. And so um, that's what I I got made. Um, Note the 1980s floppy RCA haircut. We all had had them. There was one barber. Everybody went to him. On a Tuesday, or a Thursday, I think, and that was it. So um, I was lucky enough to win my category of, uh, for the travel bursary, 
And I used the money to travel down to do some research on wheelchair workshops in Mexico and Central America. Um, so the money paid for two friends of mine, my assistant and me, to travel down from Mexico City by bus and whatever transport we could find. And having read much about the region, uh, just because I was interested in, in the region, um, it was fascinating for me to go on down to Nicaragua to see whether the revolution had just taken place not really 10 years before. And as a photographer, it was a trip of a dream come true. So I was able to shoot and do my, my favourite thing, which is street work, street portraiture. Unfortunately, the trip to Mexico didn't quite go as planned. Just before the border with uh, Central America, which is where I really wanted to go, um, we stopped uh, at a, in a, an area called the Chiapas region, and we stopped in a town called San Cristóbal de las Casas. And uh, the others were went off for a walk to the next village. And so we were walking down the next village. And I said, well, come along later when I've done some more shots. And this was the last shot I took on that trip. We, um, my assistant and I walked quite a few miles to follow them, got to the top of this ravine, and we could see the next village. We'd walked for miles and hours and thought, well, should we go for the, the ravine path or should we walk all the way back around and get a collectivo back to San Cristobal? And we thought, oh, let's just go for it. And the last thing I said to him was, whatever you do, don't tip me out. So 20 yards later, I was tipped out on the floor. And in his haste to pick me up, uh, he picked me up from behind and then tripped over and led, fell on me. He fell over onto me and I just saw my left leg go crack like that. So that was the end of my journey. So I got back in my chair and uh, to the Mexicans that were, we'd already passed about an hour before who just stared at me as I went past. Um, uh, my assistant then spoke Spanish and he went up to them and said, are there any vehicles around here? Because we were in the middle of nowhere up a mountain. And he said, are there any vehicles in here? Around here? And they just went, I'll say. And he said, look, my friend's really, really hurt himself. And they just looked over at me as if to say, well, he walked past here an hour ago and he looked exactly the same. And so, <laughs> Luckily, my leg wasn't bleeding or anything. Anyway, we went back to the hotel, and that was really the end of my trip. And so um, I am unable to take any weight in my legs. I'm paralysed. Um, and so I needed to have plaster to fly home, which is something you really shouldn't do for a paralysed leg. Um, so this doctor persuaded me to do it. I rang up my hospital in Stanmore and said, is this guy telling me the, the right story? And he said, yep, if you're flying back. So I had to have my leg plastered from up here to down there. So it took three people instead of one to get me on a plane. And uh, so what I did was I nicked the, uh, one of the planks from under the bed in this little guest house, took two cram straps from my convertible camera bag, and then tied my leg on. So this is me on the Mexican roof hotel on my way back to London, not very happy. I thought I was smiling in that picture, but clearly I wasn't. Um, and you may be asking now why Central America, why the workshops, and why wheelchairs? Well, let me rewind the story a few years. This is me 35 years ago, um, age 21 in 1982. And I was um, a farming student, agricultural student at Agricultural College in England. I went out uh, working on farms for experience. And my chosen career was based on the fact that I wanted to work outdoors, I wanted to be outdoors, I wanted to work with my hands. And I certainly didn't want to work in an office. So it was more about what I didn't want to do than I did. Um, and I was lucky enough to go to Australia and work on farms there. Uh, very shortly after I finished on the farm, about three weeks later, I went off to an island with two guys I'd met, and um, a place called Fraser Island where you take a four-wheel drive and you just drive up the beach, and in those days there were no phones. There was one phone, I think. 
luckily. Um, and about 30 seconds after this picture was taken, I decided to get out of the water and run back towards where the picture was taken from and dive into the water. And I dived a little bit too high and I caught my head on the bottom. I heard a loud crack and I stopped for a minute and I thought, hmm, that was quite loud and that hurt quite a bit. Um, so I just gave myself a second to compose myself and went to get out of the water. So I'm laying face down, I think with my arms like this in a sort of crucifix position, I think, and decided um, what I'd done. And I knew what I'd done. I'd broken my neck and I knew that that meant I was going to be paralysed. Don't ask me why. Um, I'd got O-level biology and that was it. Um, but I sort of also knew that if you... Uh, moved anything that was, you know, uh, in the damaged area, you might make it worse. And so I knew that I could turn my head left and right, but I didn't want to move. And yet I knew I couldn't lift my head up. Uh, But I couldn't lift my head out of the water. So I thought, well, either I move or I'm going to drown. So I shook my head. And luckily the two guys were watching me. I wouldn't be here today. And nothing happened. I waited and I waited. And I waited as long as I possibly could before your body just starts breathing in. You can't stop yourself. It just does it. So you drown. And so I just started breathing in. I shook my head again. And I heard steps running through. And they pulled me out of the water. And I said, hold my head up. I've broken my neck. I'm paralysed for life. They said, no, no, no. You're fine. It's just a shock. You'll be all right. And I said, don't just put me down. Don't move me. Don't touch me. Just go and find a phone and get me out of here. And so Tim uh, went off and found a phone. And about three hours later, I was picked up by a helicopter. And I was very lucky to be flown directly to a spinal cord injury unit in Brisbane. Um, otherwise, I might have been taken. It was due to his father being an orthopedic surgeon in Brisbane uh, that persuaded him to take me straight there. So this is what I did. doesn't look very much, does it? <laughs> um, it's a dislocation of the cervical 4-5 vertebrae. So you basically slide one vertebrae on the other, you cut your cord, and you're basically cutting all your broadband off near the exchanged near the exchange, so you're not getting any houses with any broadband left. And that's basically what I've done. So I've got shoulders, biceps, no grip in my hands, and no feeling from here down, which probably, that is probably the most uh, thing I think I have to think about 24 hours a day for the rest of my life. Not being able to walk is a minor part of having my disability. And so um, that uh, meant that I had to be put in uh, traction, for three months, and even though I knew what I'd done, there was still part of me that thought, maybe. And while they were putting me in traction, I sort of woke up because they dropped something on one of my tongs. They screwed them into your head to keep you in traction for three months. And then they, they, um, I woke up and I saw the doctor there, and I thought, I need to ask the question, the question I probably won't want the answer to. And I framed it in a way that I knew I would get a yes or a no answer because I didn't want any fudging. I wanted to know yes or no, and I said to him, will I ever walk again? Sorry, I said, I'm not going to walk again, am I? And he said, and he, was, and he gave me an answer that was an incredibly honest and a very intelligent reply. It was amazing. He said, no, we don't think so. And that don't think so just gave me a little 2% gap of thinking maybe there might be something here, maybe something might change. And so... Um, in the morning, I woke up again in intensive care, and he came around again, and I thought, well, maybe just make sure I heard that right. So I asked him again in the same way, and he said exactly the same thing. 30 years later, I was able to go back to Brisbane and thank him for doing that, because it put me on a really good start. 
Although when I did wake up uh, that morning, having had that conversation with him, the nurses were messing around with tubes and everything around me, and I was just lying there listening to all these beep beeps and tubes and wires and all that stuff. And I said, you know what? I really don't think I can handle this. You may as well just switch the whole lot off and we'll just call it a day. Call it a day. And they said, well, it won't make any difference, David. You're keeping yourself alive. So that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> um, and in an instant, I'd been signed up to a club that I really, really didn't want to be a member of. And so I spent, as I said, three months in, in uh, traction. And almost four, actually, because my neck didn't heal as, as quickly. So they have to heal the bones, but there's nothing they can do with the cord. So my neck no longer looks like that. It's straight. But unfortunately, the cord is the important bit. And so I thought, you know, I lay there for three months thinking, I'm young, I'm fit, I'm healthy, I'll walk out of here. And on the other side of my mind, is that I'm telling myself, this is for life, you've paralysed yourself, deal with it. And so... In reality, really, the whole process became about redesigning my life, redesigning what I was going to do with it, but also the basics of how I was going to get up and go to bed every day, literally every day. And so that's what um, you need to do. That's what rehabilitation, the process, is really important for us. This is my first day up. So this is the first few seconds I ever sat in a wheelchair. And the weirdest thing is, because they got you in a collar like this, because your neck's very weak from lying down. And because you can't feel from here down and you're not really used to it, you sort of, your head's floating in midair. You're thinking, where the hell's the rest of me? And you can't even see your knees or your feet. It's really, 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 it was a very strange feeling. I didn't particularly want this picture taken, but that was my bed in the corner. Um, so everybody talked about, oh, when are you getting up? When are you getting up? And of course, when you get up, reality hits big time home. And... Apart from a pressure-relieving cushion, which is a very important thing for me, the most important piece of equipment I need is a wheelchair, clearly. Um, and what I got was one of these. Um, and in those days, this was the Rolls-Royce of wheelchairs. This is what the NHS gave you. It's what they had in Australia. It was uh, made by a company called Everest and Jennings, and in originally in the States. It was designed in 1932 by Mr. Everest and Jennings. And it was designed for America, returning American servicemen. So... Why was it the Rolls-Royce of its day? Well, in that day, in 1932, if you'd had an injury like me or any kind of disability, you would have probably been shut in a home and just left. And you certainly wouldn't have been able to go outside much. You would have been in a rehab setting or a residential home setting. And so the chair was perfect for that. It's very heavy, couldn't tip over, wasn't adjustable apart from the foot plate height. And so there was no adjustability for the user at all. That's because the user didn't really matter because that was just going to be uh, the end of their life. In 1945, if you had a spinal cord injury in America or in the UK, before Stoke Mandeville started and Ludwig Gutmann got his, got his uh, systems going for rehabilitation, um, a paraplegic, someone from the waist down, paralysed from the waist down, would have died in about two or three years due to pressure sores and complications of bladder and kidneys. Or if it had been me, I would have lasted probably six months to six weeks. And sometimes we find that that's the same, the same case in developing countries. 1982 was actually a really good year to have a spinal cord injury, I've realised. Ten years before, I'd have been sent to a residential home, done, rehabilitated him, all back to my parents and been a, you know, a burden to my parents because I need day-to-day, 24-hour care. Um, but luckily... 
1982, the two major, major things happened. One was active style wheelchairs started coming, coming into the UK from the US. And within nine months of leaving, having broken this thing a few times, I got what was known as an active style wheelchair. It's not dissimilar to what I'm sitting in now. And it meant that suddenly I could adjust this to my needs. I could push it myself more easily. I could sit, sit up straight, not be hunched over by the, by the um, backrest of the, the other one. And, um, but not only that, very importantly, it meant that I could feel, when I looked across the room, when I was getting dressed, actually, that's a piece of equipment I really want to use. I don't mind going to college in that. Not because it's the latest, flashiest thing, just because it's got something about it. I didn't know what that something was then. And the other thing that happened that year was the IBM PC came out. So suddenly, having learned to type, to write letters back to the UK, tell my friends what I'd done, and then write back to Australia to thank everybody for helping me out there, um, I'd learned to type with two sticks. And therefore, I could use a computer. And that was my little crack in the door of pushing that door open and saying, well, I don't have any interest in computers at all, or typing particularly, but it's a way for me to communicate, and therefore I can study. I wasn't the best academic agricultural student, I have to say. I had a great time, but I didn't do massive <laughs> amounts of work. Um, and so I realised that life has changed, and I need to buckle down, and I need to study, and then I, what I wanted to make sure was that I wasn't going to lose control of my life, because... Fundamentally, physically, I am in someone else's control. If they don't want to come in and get me up, I don't go to work. But I'm now able to lead my life in a way which I can lead an independent life. Um, and I call the shots. I decide when I get up and go to bed, not like it would have been in a residential home. So the IBM PC was my window to the world. And then two years later, this thing called the Apple Mac came out came out, and immediately, having seen one and let somebody let me try one, I just rotated the mouse 180 degrees, and I used the mouse, the single-button mouse, as I do still today, to click and move the mouse. I can't move a mouse the right way around. If it goes right and left, uh, the opposite way. And so those two things were... I didn't know it then, but it was a bit about design improving my quality of life. I was the envy of my... I went off to Oxford Polytechnic and did a computing and accountancy degree. And when we left, I graduated uh, with a 2-1, something I'd never thought I'd do a degree ever. I didn't take any A-levels. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a job with IBM. I was the envy of my fellow students. Absolute envy. It's like working for Apple now, straight out of college. I mean, IBM was big blue. It was the biggest computer company in the world. It was a job for life. My thought, parents thought, great I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be here till I'm 65. And uh, I was 26, and the pension letter really scared me. Now I read that pension letter and think, fool. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> um, it was some quadruple lock or something like that, I'm sure. Um, and at IBM, I was a junior programmer. And within six months, fantastic company to work for. They really looked after me. They look after their staff really, really well. I realised, actually, this is not what I wanted to do. I'd chosen something I really, really didn't want to do. And I'd compromised myself. And in our first year, we were allowed to go off and look around the different parts of the company. And I chose to go to the photography department. I thought this would be a ruse, get me out of the office. And unfortunately, that part wasn't accessible. So they stuck me in the design department. And they gave me some graphics 
um, uh, thing exercises to do uh, for them. And every day, the whole team, a very small team, went for lunch. And I noticed you see three guys across the other side of the office uh, drawing uh, models on, on their machines. And I said over lunch to so one day, so what do you guys do uh, over there on those big machines? And they said, well, we, we're industrial designers. And I said, uh, what's that? <laughs> do you design IBM's factories or something? And uh, they said, no, we design the, the products that your software goes into. And I said, so you're the guys who make the keyboards too stiff for my squashy fingers. You're the guys who put the button around the back so I can't switch it on myself. That's what I need to be doing. It was like an epiphany on my road to the, my next part of the journey, which was the Royal College. So I decided there and then to leave IBM. It's something you never talked about. They drop you like a hot brick. So for a year and a half, I spent time thinking about how I was going to go back and do a master's. I didn't know where, anywhere, didn't matter. Um, and I unbelievably got into the Royal College. And in our first year, we were given a three-week competition project to design a wheelchair for developing countries. I'd never thought about what happens to people in a developing country in a wheelchair, in my situation, not once. And I can't claim to have had some grand vision about it. And so this thing fell in my lap, and my friend, all our laps, in fact, uh, one of the, my fellow students, Simon Gu, came over to me and said, look, I've travelled around in Asia and Africa a bit. You've obviously got some experience using a wheelchair. How about we team up? And I said, sure. We ended up winning the prize, got taken for lunch by the rector and the judges, and they said, you really shouldn't let this drop, you know. So Simon and I went, oh, OK, yeah, sure. You know, we just thought it's the first year, not part of our part twos, not a major part of our... Masters, you know. And after about a term, we thought, actually, we could probably get a trip to India out of this. <laughs> so we went to see the rector and said, um, is there any chance we could have a bit of time off college? And he said, marvellous, uh, to go and study this design. We weren't going to do that. We weren't just going to go on a, a holiday. Um, well, New Year's Eve in um, Goa. But the, uh, uh, and so he said, uh, marvellous idea. How much do you need? And I, we, I, we just made up a figure on the spot. We hadn't actually asked him for any money. I found out about 10 years later he paid for that out of his own money. And he said, see the registrar, he'll write you a cheque. This was the 80s. <laughs> There's a lot more money around. So with our prize money, we went off uh, to India and then Bangladesh. This is us in the men's toilets in Jodhpur Palace <laughs> uh, with having a delayed flight. And the guy on the left, uh, Simon's on the right, and the guy on the left is Richard Frost who came on the trip with us, and he'd uh, been at Oxford Poly with me. We did finance and accountancy together, and the three of us went off. And Rich was great at ideas, business talent. Simon was a great designer. And the three of us went off to this centre, a spinal cord injury centre in Dhaka called the Centre for the Rehabilitation of the Paralysed. And the woman who founded it, I could see in the wards that you know they were doing the same sort of rehab that I'd had, but in a very, very different circumstance. And it was a real bring-up bring moment for all of us, uh, but it, for me as well. And I'd, I'd been through all that, so I knew what it was like. And in terms of wheelchairs, they had their own workshop, and they were making wheelchairs. And you might recognise that as designers. The roots of that chair is the chrome chair I showed you. So the thing to copy in all the countries we started going to was an Everest and Jennings wheelchairs, because that's what you'd copied, because it was great. It was from the West. You know, it was American. And so, um, and what they were doing was copying it out of very poor quality steel, 28-inch Chinese ritual wheels, because that was all that was available, and sidearms uh, welded on, because um, 
they didn't want to get nicked or lost. So that boy's about 11. He's a paraplegic having a shower. And he would really struggle to transfer himself by using his triceps to lift himself up and over those side arms, out of that chair, to get into bed, to get dressed, and then back in it um, to use it. So Valerie Taylor, the founder of the place, came up, an English physiotherapist, she came up to us at the end and said, um, "What you've done, we, we built a chair in the, in the five days we were there, our design, and she said, what you've done here is amazing. Would you come back here and build these for us? Show us how to do it. And we all looked at each other and went, why not? We've got nothing else to do after college. <laughs> So we went back six months later, we raised some money in the States, and we spent six months in Bangladesh redesigning those chairs using the same materials, taught the workshop staff how to set it up um, to make 20 a month rather than just one a month, and then we spent the next 10 or 12 years going around the world on request to small little workshops and rehab centres and disability organisations, setting up workshops, large and small, some of them the size of this room, some of them um, the size of a toilet. And so, tiny places. And redesigned the chair every time we went somewhere. We worked in Eastern Europe, all through Asia, Central America, Africa. Now, what else was going on when we discovered these places? Well, this was going on. So people, you know, if the, if the wheelchair I'd been given that designed in 1932 wasn't suitable for me in the UK, it certainly wasn't suitable for this man in Papua New Guinea. You know, that chair's not doing him any good at all. This is design used in the wrong context. People think, oh, yeah, we'll recycle them. It's great. We'll get rid of our problem that the NHS have and we'll chuck them over to a developing country. The people are poor. It doesn't matter. It does matter. It's about another person. Or they're given chairs that are copied from Anderson Jennings from China, brand new, and they're just handed out willy-nilly, one size fits all, no cushion, that boy will have severe scoliosis by the time he's 15. He's already got a, a deformity in his feet. He'll never be able to put his feet on a foot plate again. And he'll probably get a die of a pressure sore in about a year because he's got no cushion. Now, what we tried to do was bring design into the sector of international development. And we didn't realise it at the time. We just went and did design. We didn't even know what international development was. And here are two chairs as an example, both made by international organisations, um, one British, one French. Um, they use the same wood, the same wheels, and they cost exactly the same. Which would you rather use, or which would you give your child? The one on the right was meant for kids with spinal cord injury. This is about the self-esteem and the self-respect of the user. And that's what I felt when I got into that chair that day. Suddenly, you know, it wasn't going to change the fact that I was disabled, but it suddenly made me feel better about myself. And Dieter Rams once said, design should not dominate things should not dominate people. It should help people. That's its role. So we've been using design to improve the quality of life of people with mobility disabilities for the last 25 years. Now, you've heard about the me in Ali's programme. Poem, sorry. Um, what about the we? The really important bit is it's not just me doing this. There's a whole team that's in motivation who make this happen. There's a team of dedicated designers, engineers, therapists... Program and field staff all over the world, 60 of five of us. Uh, the support staff of fundraising, uh, finance and administration to make the whole thing work all over the world. So the first 10 years, we, uh, we probably produced about um, 18,000 wheelchairs from 22 different workshops um, and in, in the, all those countries. Then 
In 2001 and 2, we decided that we would flat pack our design to make sure the quality was remaining consistent. So we created a flat pack range of the different designs that we've done uh, for seating, for um, different disabilities. We've also designed a range of sports chairs, and these are used by individuals here to get into low-cost sport, uh, but also used by humanitarian organisations all over the world to, to get people. This is in Afghanistan, where they hold, held the first Afghan national wheelchair basketball tournament in those chairs, and they, now they have a national team. The key to our success has been remaining small and staying and working with people that are big and small and working with a wider we, if you like. This is not just about products, but systems too. How do you flat pack a wheelchair and make sure it gets fitted to that person in the field, right at the point of where they live or the, sec- or the, or the wheelchair service where they can get to? And it's about the sort of hardware and the software of wheelchair provision. It's not just by chance I happen to be sitting in this chair the right way. It's, it's you know, been fitted, uh, I've been assessed, fitted. So we worked with the WHO to help create a set of guidelines and um, training that will enable staff in different places to be taught how the basic steps of wheelchair provision should go. This is about the right wheelchair in the right way. Here's an ideal service. Wheelchair user client on the right, sitting on a cushion, waiting for a chair to be fitted for her and two technicians, one happens to use a motivation wheelchair um, in the foreground. In his book, Do Design, Alan Moore says, the act of creating something of beauty is a way of bringing good into the world. Infused with optimism, it says simply, life is worthwhile. That is what I felt when I got a better chair. That is what I felt when I got an Apple Mac and not have to use the IBM PC. (laughs) And that's what I felt every day when I get in chair. And that's what we're trying to do in places that, where people have next to nothing. We're trying to design to create proud, active, independent, confident users, a better design for a better life. So over the last 25 years, we've gone from this, sketching things out on the floor in Bangladesh, to this. And it's so important that we continue designing. We haven't just created this flat-pack range and sat on, sat on them. Um, our design journey just doesn't stop there. You know, I'm constantly changing things in my home and redesigning stuff and changing my posture and all sorts of things. And the motivation, we know that continuing to design new and better things. So we're looking at how, we're researching how we can use 3D printing uh, directly in the field uh, to create postural support devices, for example. So this is about how design changed my life me. Design can change your life. Done well, it can change the lives of others. Motivation, the we, came about thanks to a series of very serendipitous moments. Very serendipitous. And the trick was really to choose which ones were the right ones to follow, and importantly, the wrong ones to follow, or the ones we didn't want to follow. We haven't always got it right. And my message to you, the broader we is to have the courage to follow your passion, follow your instinct in what you want to do. Make whatever you do make sense. Make it make a difference. Thank you.
Thank you, David. That was uh, absolutely incredible. <laughs> I think we all really hugely enjoyed that inspiring. You've inspired us uh, and with your passion for what design can do and your personal journey through it. Absolutely incredible. Thank you. So as Severa said earlier, the RSA Student Design Awards is the paramount competition for students to apply design thinking and practical skills to a range of social, environmental and economic issues. And it's now my uh, delight, really, to announce the 2017 RSA Student Design Award winners this evening. Uh, the winners we're announcing to tonight were selected after a rigorous two-stage judging process where every single piece of work that is submitted uh, is viewed by a panel of judges brought together for their expertise around the topic of the briefs that were set. And a list of finalists is then created, and those finalists are then interviewed about their research and design process. I think it's a, really a unique process that really gets into the depth of the, uh, the quality and the thinking behind the design concepts. So the winners were chosen after those extensive jury deliberations, so they really have been put through their paces and earned their right to be here tonight. So before I announce the winners, I'd also like to tell you about the awards that are actually handed to the student. Because I'm delighted to see Robin Levine here in the front row, uh, who is the designer. He is a royal designer for industry and a long-time friend and supporter of the RSA and the Student Design Awards. Um, these awards were inaugurated in 2014 to celebrate the 90th anniversary of the RSA Student Design Awards programme. Uh, and so we continue that tradition tonight. Robin designed the award to commemorate the moment our winners take that big step and start their careers as designers for social change. They are true stepping stones, and I know that the winners will cherish them uh, for years to come. Actually, I don't know, because I never got one. I did mine way too early, but maybe you'll give me one, Robin, one day. <laughs> um, so we have the winner's slide. Without further ado, I'm going to announce the 2017 RSA Student Design Award winners. The first brief we have... Uh, it's called Rework, and it's been kindly sponsored by RBS, who asks students to design and develop a proposal and an associated business case for a new product and or service made from disused office furniture. And we have one outright winner, and that is Thomas Hal-Jones from Birmingham City University. It's for rest, a hard shell rucksack and pannier bag made from the backrest of redundant office chairs. Uh, through rest, the office chairs transformed into a multifunctional, ecological product promoting an active lifestyle. The judges commended Thomas's enthusiasm, professional presentation and his prototype. They commented, commented on how impressive it was that he conceived a whole suite of products that could be made from redundant office chairs. And Thomas has indicated his ambition to take this project further, and we hope he does. In addition, students responding to the rework brief who were asked to submit a business case for their project, and there was a separate judging uh, session for this, and so the business case award goes to Ethan Howard from Uppsala University in Sweden and Thomas Waisling of Cranfield University, who worked as a team to create Bear Technology. So a round of applause for them.
Their technology is a product and service design solution to convert old computers, e-waste, into simpler, more straightforward, accessible computers for older people. Uh, Bear Technology aims to address the increasing problem of e-waste and the fact that many older people are isolated by technology. And the judging panel commented that Ethan and Thomas's understanding of how to put together a business case was unparalleled amongst the finalists. And the judges congratulate them uh, on how they demonstrated awareness of revenue streams and growth. And the panel encouraged Ethan and Thomas to take the project forward as a business to see where it goes. So just do that. (laughs) Thank you. Great. This brief, sponsored by Philips, was for the Good Life 2.0, asking students to use design to empower people to better prevent, detect, treat, and possibly reverse lifestyle-related health conditions. And there are two winners. The first up is Aidan Possel of Plymouth University for Breathe Easy. And Breathe Easy is a consumer healthcare system and subscription service tackling the issues caused by ambient air pollution through three key strategies of the product, a tree planting scheme and citizen science. Breathe Easy aims to not only reduce the potential risk of air pollution on the body, but also decrease the amount of contamination in the air and address people's attitudes on the impact of pollution. The panel applauded Aidan's strategic approach and commended his consideration of the whole user journey, as well as the commercial model and stakeholders. They also commented on Aidan's passion for his work, which came through in his interview. And the second winner is Nerissa Aviano Prawiro of Loughborough University for D-IT. And Diet is a personalised automated diet management system that provides real-time analysis of calories and nutrients to detect over or under consumption through scanning and weight. The system encourages compliance with renal diet allowances and may prevent progression of kidney failure. The panel applauded Nerissa's fantastic research and insights and were impressed by her exceptional level of design thinking. The judges admitted they were captivated by her work and one judge said, Nerissa inspired me, my heart melted. And another said, I'd love to work with her. <laughs> so well done. Uh, next brief is for Agile Aging, uh, kindly sponsored by Phaser with additional support from Waitrose asking students to design a way to increase and maintain mental agility and brain power in older ages. And there are two winners. Firstly, Chanisa Chalamachawit, Christy Cheng Wan Ting, and Jinhu Lo from La Salle College of the Arts in Singapore for Lit. And Lit is an app supported by local supermarkets that allows users to shop for food based on their individual medical history and or dietary requirements, making it easier to eat foods that would improve overall health. Uh, The jury was impressed by the team's research and that they identified a real opportunity to use data to inform and improve people's health and nutrition. The jury commented that they felt the solution could easily be implemented into supermarkets in the near future. We're delighted to have Chanisa and Christy here, and Jin Hu could not be here this evening, but uh, we're going to make sure you give her the award. Great, thank you. And second award for Amber Rusk from the Arts University of Bournemouth for the Memory Bus. 
So Memory Bus is a regular bus service that offers passengers a chance to play games and quizzes, engage in various activities and have impromptu conversations in an effort to increase and maintain cognitive function and decrease loneliness. I think I could do without on the 8.15 from Waterloo. The jury was impressed with Amber's very professional presentation and her thoughtful design. They also commended Amber on the pattern design she developed for the bus exteriors, which was well-crafted, clever and pleasing. <laughs> uh, great. Now, next brief, Circular Futures, sponsored by Unilever, which asks students to design and develop a product, system or business model for fast-moving consumer goods based on the principles of circular design and value creation. And the winner is Philippa Bridges from Loughborough University for Infinity Mascara. And Infinity Mascara is a refillable mascara product and service solution where the mascara can be applied to the lashes with a 3D printed fingertip that fits the individual's finger form. The product only needs to be replaced every three to six months and it is estimated that Infinity will save 25 mascara bottles per person from landfill. The judges commended Philippa's truly outstanding level of system thinking and amazing originality, as well as the depth of her research, attention to detail, level of prototyping and the excellent execution. All in all, they found Infinity Mascara to be a simply stunning solution. Uh, they also commented on how impressed they were by Philippa and they highly recommended that she further pursue the product. Next brief... Sponsored by RBS is entitled Mind Your Money, with additional support from NCR, which asks students to design a way for people to improve their financial capability and manage their money better. Two winners here. The first one is Liam Tuckwood from the University of Derby for Emote. Emote is an interactive debit card with a face that reacts and emotes based on the user's spending and remaining bank balance. (laughs) Interesting. Come and see me later. The card is linked to an app that serves as a budget tool and a reminder. The judges applauded Liam's in-depth research and design thinking process, his solid understanding of human nature and the clever simplicity of his solution. They also commended his fantastic video and prototypes and his excellent and extremely professional pitch. And the second winner is Sarah White of Sheffield Hallam University. So back in black. Back in Black is a money management app for students to help people spend and save money wisely. The app is specifically targeted at students and works to prevent the urge to spend impulsively by reminding students of their longer-term saving goals, but also acknowledges the need to go out and enjoy themselves. The judges applauded Sarah's strong research and user-centred design thinking process, as well as her excellent execution and graphics. They love the real-world language and the element of humour in her solution, uh, which they admired for being authentic. They commended Sarah's solid understanding of behavioural hurdles to financial capability and the way she addressed these hurdles directly through her response. So, congratulations. Uh, For the brief Happy Birthday, sponsored by GlaxoSmithKline, 
asking students to design a way of ensuring that mothers and children in emerging markets have the greatest chance of survival in pregnancy and birth and that children are given the best and fairest start in life, the two winners are Emily Brook from Leeds Beckett University for Reusable Maternity Kit. This is a safe, sustainable and comfortable solution for managing afterbirth bleeding designed specifically for mothers in the Gambia. The kit includes four reusable maternity towels, two pairs of cotton underwear and instructions, instructions excuse me, showing how the kit can be used. The jury commended Emily's understanding of how to fill the gap in the market and how she chose to tackle a challenging issue, issue and used clear design thinking to address it. The panel was impressed with her ability to understand the links between empowerment and mental and physical health. And Elspeth Coots from Edinburgh College of Art for Chain Reaction. <laughs> Chain Reaction is a unique peer empowerment campaign and workshop programme tackling and breaking the everyday stigmas faced by women with a focus on East Africa, designed to address a lack of sexual health, menstruation, pregnancy and childbirth education. The campaign and workshops would be run with women's groups provided by global charities such as Women and Children First. And the panel commended Elspeth's understanding of how to use design to address health <coughs> issues in young people as a preventative measure and build a social movement uh, amongst adolescent girls. Our next brief is called Beyond Borders and sponsored by the Marketing Trust with additional support from the Chartered Institute of Marketing which asks students to create a campaign or a service, product or an environment to promote intercultural understanding. The two winners are Arely Jacobs from the University of Bedfordshire for the Welcome Project. The Welcome Project is a community-based service scheme and campaign aimed at newcomers in a new community or society looking for guidance and friendly advice. Uh, the Welcome Project also provides locals with an opportunity to give back to their community in a number of ways and even promote their businesses. The judging panel was extremely impressed by the standard of Arelli's work and by her as an individual and commented that she absolutely nailed the brief. In particular, they commended her impressive design process, user-led research and commercial awareness. And they applauded Arelli's engaging manner and excellent presentation. And second award was to Antonia Lowe from the University of Northampton for Culture Connects. Culture Connects is a culture tower, a fun and educational board game for school-aged children that aims to confront the issues of cultural misunderstanding that lead to social conflict. The judging panel commented in particular on Antonia's fantastic research process, user testing and the outstanding attention to detail. They also commended her impressive prototypes and excellent presentation and really admired the initiative and commercial awareness she showed through the consideration of the competitive environment and potential for licensing. Our next brief is called Hack on Wheels and is sponsored by the Global Disability Innovation Hub and developed by Disrupt Disability. And students were asked to design a wheelchair for the future 
for the Hack on, from the Hack on Wheels Library of Open Source Designs. And there are two winners for this. Nelson Knoll of Central St. Martins, part of the University of Arts for London for Curve. <laughs> Curve is an indoor wheelchair designed as another piece of furniture in the home that is aesthetically pleasing. David would have approved and does not have a medical look or feel. Uh, and it is more suited to household tasks because of its elevated seat height. The judges applauded Nelson's thoughtful, insightful design approach and the fact that his solution incorporated disrupt disability kit parts as well as other 3D printed elements. They admired his brilliant passion for inclusive yet aspirational design and they absolutely loved the amazing prototype he made. And Thomas Dell of the University of Nottingham for Hacks. is a low friction reduction gearing system enabling wheelchair users to tackle slopes, hills and terrains that would otherwise be difficult. The system is designed to be customizable, cost effective and adaptable to any wheelchair. The judges thought Thomas's open source design approach was fantastic and also commented on his outstanding presentation, passion and user-led research. They said he demonstrated fantastic design thinking and iteration and they also loved his really impressive prototyping. Excellent. For the brief wearing intelligence supported by the Eddie Squires legacy to the RSA with additional support from Kinnear Dufour Design Consultancy asking students to develop a design solution that uses advanced textiles to improve well-being or the quality of people's lives and there are three winning projects. First up is Michael Soper of the University of the West England for Felicitate. To read that carefully... <laughs> Felicitate is a new breed of catheter that gives the user freedom, discretion and dignity uh, they would have if they did not have one. Felicitate uses electroactive polymers to pump fluid out of an evacuation pipe placed in the underwear, enabling them to easily empty it into the toilet themselves. The panel applauded Michael's impressive problem identification in response to the brief and commended his primary research, excellent prototyping, and all-round great design thinking process. They were inspired by the way he tackled this sensitive and unglamorous issue, approaching it with great maturity and integrity. The judges also commented that they think Felicitate has a real commercial potential. And Natalia Savicheva from the British Higher School of Art and Design in Moscow for Camarillon. Camarillon is a wearable game that utilises smart shoes which change pattern and texture depending on the wearer's activity, fashion and geodata to motivate teens to go outside, exercise and socialise. The judges were very impressed by Natalia as an individual and her work. Wow, an all-round fantastic project and person are the precise words they used. They applauded her fun, scalable solution and rigorous research and design process and her engaging presentation. So well done. And Dominique Falcone, Denise Rodriguez and Jose Ortiz from the Tecnologica de Monterrey at the Campus Puebla in Mexico for RISE. (laughs) 
And fantastically, we have them here. Another applause for that. That's just brilliant. RISE is an intelligent carpet for growing crops in refugee camps to boost resources and restart economic flow. RISE is specifically designed for use in non-fertile humanitarian crisis regions. It is made from 100% biodegradable materials, contains local seeds and liquid filters, and relies on human urine as a liquid source. The judges were extremely impressed by the team's work and by each student as, a student as individuals. They described their solution as absolutely brilliant and applauded the ambitious approach to tackling a global crisis, commended the trio for proposing a new advanced textile with real commercial potential. So well done. And now we have the brief uh, for Inclusive Living, sponsored by the Office for Disability Issues, with additional support from PRP Architects, asking students to design and develop a proposal for inclusive living that challenges the way we design our homes. The two winners are Sophia Barnett from Oxford Brookes University for Be Able. Be Able is a rating system for accessibility in the city powered by user-generated content, UGC, and a set of illustrations that show the frustrations that thousands of people go through on a daily basis due to thoughtless, inaccessible and exclusive design. The judges commented that Sophia's pitch was extremely professional and they were impressed how she developed a great brand and the panel encouraged her to take her project further, saying Sophie has the savvy and passion to make it happen. The panel was impressed with her deep passion for inclusive design. And Jemima Oliver of Portsmouth University for Umbrella. Sadly, she's not here, but Umbrella is an inclusive and interactive game designed to establish a holistic mindset and nurture a resilient community by revealing the importance of empowerment and integration within society through promoting trust, collaboration and connection. The judges noted that Jemima's project was beautifully executed and the panel was impressed with the testing she'd done with friends and family to iterate the game. The panel were particularly enamoured with how she used the game to demonstrate an awareness of and value for people's different skills. Our next award is for the brief for Learning for Life, supported by the Government Office for Science and Policy Lab, asking students to design an exciting new way to support, encourage and stimulate learning throughout people's lives in the future. The two winners are Jasmine Robinson from Norwich University of the Arts for Project UX. Project UX is a social enterprise with two key aims. Firstly, to provide a rigorous user testing service for digital products and services. And secondly, to provide testers with the opportunity to improve their own digital skills whilst earning money through a structured user testing program. The program is targeted at companies trailing new online and digital products and services intended for mass use. The judges commented that Jasmine's presentation was extremely professional and they were impressed at how she articulated her work. The panel were particularly impressed with her live infographic, sounds amazing, which was a very creative, informative and useful way to visualise your solution. Her deep understanding of the complex system in which her solution would operate and how she could slot her proposal into existing systems was highly impressive. And... 
The names will sound familiar because they also won their business case in the rework brief, but Ethan Howard of Uppsala University, come back round, and Thomas Wrestling of Cranfield University for Bear Technology. So you will remember, of course, that their technology is a product and service design solution to convert old computers into simpler, more straightforward, accessible computers for older people. Their technology aims to address the increasing problem of e-waste and the fact that older people are isolated by technology. So Thomas and Ethan are the first students in recent history to have won across two briefs. So congratulations, judged by two different panels. So we congratulate them on that extraordinary success. So another round of applause. And the judges commended you on addressing issues of both lifelong learning and the growing problem of e-waste. The panel was impressed with your prototype and the ambition to take the project further. Our next award is for the brief of Moving Pictures, sponsored by NHS England with additional support from RSA Events and NatureCare, asking students to conceive and produce an animation to accompany an audio file to clarify, energise and illuminate content. There were two audio files to choose from. You could have done the more than a pill, which describes how we might view health as a large social movement in line with a larger piece of RSA research. And the second, entitled End Ageism, taken from the RSA's public events programme that provokes us to think differently about age and challenge stereotypes of age. And there are three winners for the moving picture as follows. First up, Sarah Nine of Limerick School of Art and Design in Ireland for a helping hand. A helping hand, an animation that focuses on the power of togetherness to communicate the idea of harnessing the existing energy visualised as batteries we possess as a society and how we can use this to improve our collective well-being. The judges commented that Sarah's understanding of a social movement, something that even experts have difficulty defining, uh, and it was very impressive and your research was very impressive. The panel liked that her animation felt handcrafted and very human in line with the NHS's thinking on health as a social movement. And next we have Yasmin Cowan and Will Parks of Birmingham City University for their work, Collaborative Animation. <laughs> Collaborative Animation is an animation based on two contrasting styles, tonal, portraiture and loose gestural drawing to create an overall concept that flows and transitions with keywords in the audio. The panel commented that their animation was very beautifully executed and that they brought the content alive through their creativity. They demonstrated a great division of labour and used their talents very well. And finally, Eleanor Russell-Jones from Arts University of Bournemouth for Age Pride. Age Pride is an animation that highlights the negative stereotypes our Western culture has of older people and argues that these views are wrong and outdated, emphasising the message that age really is just a number and is not what defines us. The judges commented that Eleanor's animation was well-crafted, technically excellent and stylistically exceptional. Where are you? There you are. (laughs) 
It also spoke, spoke well, there's such a huge number now, <laughs> it spoke well to the content. The judging panel was impressed that she deliberately included prejudice-free images and commented that her research was excellent and she clearly understood the whole context. The panel was impressed with her technical skill and that she is self-taught. We would like to doubly congratulate Eleanor as, in addition to being selected as a winner by the panel, she also won the RSA Staff Choice Award, which was chosen by a majority vote of the RSA staff from all the shortlisted animations. And that brings us to the end of the awards night. So a huge and very hearty congratulations to all the 2017 winners. And thank you to all the sponsors and supporters of the RSA Student Design Awards. You've only seen a small snapshot of the winning work here tonight, but you can view more images and longer descriptions of all the winning projects on the showcase section of the RSA website. And I think just just to personally add that I've spent most of the day here with these students, and I have to say it's been an incredibly inspirational day, uh, seeing the future talent that is here and seeing their ability to use design uh, and apply it to an incredibly diverse range of contexts, difficult topics, difficult things to solve, wicked problems. And I think it's just been incredible to see how you brought your creativity and your design thinking to do that, uh, completely in tune with the values of the RSA. And it's just been a total joy uh, talking to you and talking at you at times as well (laughs) during the day. So I'm going to hand you now back to Severa, who's going to make some closing remarks. To conclude this evening's festivities, I just want to um, say some very big thank yous to everyone who makes this program possible. Um, First of all, um, our partners, our sponsors, our collaborators, the jury members, and all of the educational institutions, all of the faculty members, the educators that are out there, I know, in the audience tonight. Um, Earlier we heard from Dominic um, Falcone, who was saying that he wanted to say his own personal thanks for all the people who've stood behind the students to get them where they are today. And I'd like to add my thanks to everyone on that as well. Um, you know, we, we are sort of rely on the collective to champion the scheme here. And so um, I want to extend a personal thanks to everyone who's been part of it. And um, really importantly... There is a small but mighty RSA team behind the scenes who work tirelessly to ensure that this program happens year on year. Um, And I want to extend uh, my biggest thanks to Rebecca Ford, Lottie Dawson, Melanie Andrews, Janet Hawken, and Hannah Pater, um, all of whom have done um, a huge amount of work to ensure that we can all be here tonight, the students can be here. Um, And so please say thanks to them if you see them in the audience. I see a few of them. It, always, it, makes us, it makes us really happy when people say, oh, we thought you were like a team of 100. And we say, yeah, we're, just, we're, we're so powerful. With um, and finally, um, and most importantly, I want to thank all the students who participated this year, not just the winners. You know, there are actually over 1,000 people who've worked on this brief um, who aren't here tonight, who didn't sort of win the award, but who are making uh, change in the world through design. Um, and this is for all of them. But particularly to the winners, um, we couldn't do it without you. And nor would the so we simply couldn't do it without you, and nor would the world of design be where it is today. So thank you for that. Please join us downstairs for a drink in toasting this year's winners, um, and have great conversations. And see everyone next year. Good night. <laughs> thank you for listening. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.